So today I am going to call you to give more to God's work. I'm going to call you to labour more for his glory. I'm going to call you to generally be more dedicated to serving God in every area of your life. So far so predictable for the average preacher. Um, and to be honest, I suspect that the range of responses to um, um, uh, th- those things are relatively predictable too. There will be um, ego-responsive types whose immediate response is to, to tense themselves a little, to gird up their loins, to, to, to live just a little bit more, with a little bit more determination for uh, the Lord. There will be demoralised people or overcommitted people, who, to be honest, hear what I've already said with a little cry in their hearts, I just can't do anymore. There will be cynical people, in our age, I think, more than in many ages, who sort of mentally lean back. I sometimes see people actually do that when, when, um, um, when I announce this kind of topic. But... Um, that they, they lean back and they say, well, let him persuade me then. You know, I'm, I'm pretty immune to this sort of thing. Another power play, another cracking of the whip. Uh, he's not going to get past my defences. Um, and frankly, if you were God here, or if you could see what God sees, hear what God hears, you would hear a buzz around this room. To be honest, it's probably a, a regular cacophony of different thoughts buzzing around in people's minds. And my aim this morning, my, my prayer for today, this, uh, the, the, this week, has been simple and focused. My aim is that that cacophony would resolve in the next half hour into a single coherent cry in all of us. And a cry actually which has nothing, nothing to do with me, a cry which doesn't particularly have anything to do with, with, with this church or the church budget or a new assistant pastor or any of the other things I'm going to mention. A cry which in essence says... I'm hungry to love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. Please, God, help me. And in order to do that, I want us to hear Jesus. Actually, his call is is so radical that it makes the most demanding appeals that people like me ever make sound like bedtime stories by comparison. And actually, his call is so compelling that many of the first disciples willingly sold everything that they had and even accepted death in order to follow him. And in fact, it was so attractive that they did it joyfully. His call was always actually only in a secondary sense about all the practical things that rightly we have to think about, work and time and money and so on. What Jesus wanted more than anything else was our hearts. And Matthew six nineteen to 24 speaks, as we'll see, actually about practical day-to-day 
living. It is, those things are vitally important. He is going to call us to a more sacrificial lifestyle, but not as an end in itself. Jesus calls us to sacrificial living, I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to persuade you, because it, that transforms our hearts. Because that makes our hearts whole. That makes us complete. That makes us into the people he wants us to be. And that actually if we could only see it, the people we ourselves would want to be. And he warns against selfishness, hard-heartedness, short-sightedness, mediocre, half-hearted living, because actually that destroys us. I want us to see this morning just this one thing. Our hearts are Jesus' primary concern. And, over time, our hearts are shaped by the cumulative weight of the choices and habits and practical day-to-day things we do. From these verses, that's just what I want us to see. Just one thing which we will meditate on. The choices we make shape our hearts. Jesus highlights three areas of choice, or three aspects of those choices in these these verses. First of all, he's going to talk in verses 19 to 21 about where we invest, what we invest in. In verses 22 and 23, he's going to talk about not, not so much what we look at, but how we look. I'll explain that in a, in a little while. And then in verse 24, he's going to talk about who or what we serve. So, uh, first of all then, we need to look at what we invest in. Do not store up for yourselves, verse 19, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying, you see, that we all invest in things. We all store up treasure. That's, 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 that's a major part of how we live. And he's saying, it is utterly foolish, as Richard was reminding us, to store up treasure on earth. Natural disasters come. Moth and rust. We had an infestation of moths, uh, clothes moths in our house this last summer. I lost some of our most precious clothes. Not an unusual thing, that is just the way it goes. Your car will become a rust bucket. And if nature doesn't do it, then people will. Thieves break in and steal, says uh, Jesus. I don't know whether you um, would call highly paid bankers thieves. Perhaps depends on your, uh, your particular political um, uh, allegiances. But nevertheless, people, other people over whom we have no control, determine our financial well-being. 
been so obvious the last few years. And what uh, nature and other people begin, death completes. The Apostle Paul said to uh, his young disciple Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. What a fool, foolish thing to do then. To invest all our treasure in this life, this world, if we're Christians. And we can see beyond it. Treasure in heaven, on the other hand, accumulating is, is accumulating things that last forever. We are promised eternal rewards in heaven. We were, we were singing about it, we were reading about it from, uh, uh, from Psalm 16, amongst other things. Every act of faith and love done in God's name, in Jesus' name, is noted and rewarded, says the Bible. We are promised that actually if we treasure God above all things, then, then we will find that infinitely rewarded. As God himself wipes away every tear from our eyes, as God dwells with us and we see him face to face in eternity. 1 Peter 1 verse 4 puts it like this, we are promised an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us. Okay? So, so that much is clear and obvious from um, this text. But now comes the thing I want, I want us to dwell on this morning. Verse 21. Did you notice it? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice what he's saying. Where our treasure is, that is where we have, have, have uh, stored up our most treasured things, our heart will always follow. It is impossible for it not to. That's why he says you should store up treasure in eternity because wherever you're storing your treasure, that's where your heart will be going. And if you're storing up your treasure here and now in things that rust and, uh, and fade away and disappear, well, your heart will be misdirected and in fact, in the long, heart, long run, your heart will be redu reduced your heart will be disappointed. In fact, you will find your heart becoming more and more bitter and twisted as a result. Because there is only one way those things go. It is down to destruction. He's saying, do you want to focus your heart on that? Do you want that to be the characteristic of the rest of your life? Because if it is, it is downhill all the way. J.R.R. Tolkien's portrayal of Gollum in Lord of the Rings just captured that, uh, that superbly. We all know the story now. Gollum began his life as Smeagol, a perfectly ordinary, happy, healthy hobbit like the rest of them. 
but his heart was captured by the ring so that he came to call it my precious. And slowly over the years, the ring twisted, corrupted, distorted and brutalised him into Gollum. Interestingly, Frodo understands Gollum. He understands the draw of the precious ring. It is an enormous effort for him to resist it. But he does because he knows what will happen to his heart if he gives in to it. Um, The lurid life stories uh, that illustrate that in the the real world are are legion. I mean, many of you will have watched Aviator, I'm sure, which was a portrayal of Howard Hughes and who became a recluse, refusing even to touch door handles at the end of his life. Utterly miserable. But those are just extreme cases, which illustrate in graphic uh, technicolour what is a universal reality. We are all shaped by our treasure. What you dream of becomes who you are. First way that Jesus describes it, he then uh, talks about how we look and says substantially the same thing from a different angle now. The, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Our eyes, says Jesus, are like lamps. They're like windows lighting up the whole of our lives. And and how we use our eyes then shapes who we are. I mean, he might have in mind simply what we look at, what draws our attention will shape who we are. Do we always stop in the estate agent's window just to dream a little? Do we linger too long at the, uh, at the clothes shop window? Do we accidentally on purpose find ourselves on a pornographic website? Where, where our eyes go will shape our lives. But I use that word how we look because I think it captures more of what Jesus is, 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 is really focusing on there. That the the, um, the word translated um, good um, can mean simple, straightforward. It can mean sincere. It can also mean generous. And the opposite uh, that he talks about, if your eyes are bad, the bad eye of verse 23, definitely elsewhere in the Bible, means miserly. So, um, he's probably using um, uh, the idiom of the, of the eye to say, to say something like this. Do, do you look generously? When you see a disaster on the, uh, on, the, on the television, do you think, how can I give to them or do you switch channels? When you see another church, a person in the church is overburdened and struggling, do you, do you think, 
how can I help them or do you go and find a less demanding person to talk to? You have a generous eye and financial generosity is undoubtedly one aspect of that. And actually it's one area where evangelical Christians in general in this country do excel. In Britain at the moment, only about half the population of Britain gives anything to charity. And of those who give, the average amount given in a year is less than 1% of their income. Amongst evangelical Christians, on average, the giving is, and all of them give, the giving is 11%. Over 10 times as much as other people. It's great for evangelicals as a whole, but what about you? Are you generous? Note his focus again, though. It is not on what that generosity achieves for others. That's great, that's important, that's good and wonderful. It is what that generosity, or the lack of it, does to us. If your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You know, of course, Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, he's a caricature, but he's a caricature drawn to, to show us a truth. If you're a miser, then there's something inside you which becomes darker and darker and darker and more and more shriveled. you're generous if you look with generosity there's something inside you which just is filled with light more and more and more Jesus what do you want to choose it's a no brainer isn't it he's concerned about our hearts what we invest in how we look, and then who or what we serve. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the the NIV uses a capital M for that word money in verse uh, 24, because Jesus uses a word mammon, which uh, portrays money in sort of God-like terms, as if money is like a God. In fact, money can become an idol to us. That's what he's saying. And you can't serve the true God and any other God. Notice again, why? That's what we're dwelling on. Why? Because choices become habits of the heart. You choose to serve money and slowly but surely we come to love it. We come to be devoted to it, says Jesus. Perhaps more significantly, we come to hate God. We come to despise him, says Jesus. The human heart in the long run cannot ever be divided. It will always ultimately focus in only one direction. 
and the direction that it focuses in will be loved and all other things will be despised. So serve God, says Jesus. Do not serve that idol money because you'll love it and it will destroy you. See what he's saying? The thousands, even millions of choices that we make in those areas, what we invest in, how we look at things, what we serve, a cumulatively, steady, steadily, inexorably shape our hearts. Now that's the, that's the context then, that we must look at some of the immediate needs that the, that the elders have asked me to bring before you. We're living in a challenging time financially, that the, the church finances reflect that. We're not in, we're not in crisis mode uh, as a church. Hence, we've had the courage to, uh, uh, to move forward to uh, appoint a new pastor. But the financial needs are significant. His role will be, um, if he's appointed, to, to, uh, to strengthen the work amongst youth and families, to capitalise in part on the, on the wonderful work in the community that Nick Carpenter and her team of, of, with the Sunflowers Toddler Group and other things have, have done um, uh, to, to reach out and make contact with wide number of families in the community. I, I estimate that over half the families in, uh, in our area, and it's probably in the immediate area of the church significantly more than that even, all, over half of them know the church building, have been there, appreciate it, appreciate church, church people. So, there's, a, there's a slightly disconcerting thing that happens to me with great regularity now. Um, um, young mothers with little children walking down the street um, uh, who I don't know from Eve look at me and smile and say, hello Peter, and I think, you know, <laughs> not sure what's going on. Well, I am. That's just what that's just what the what the last number of years of investment that this church has made in the local community has done. We need to capitalise on that. We need those people not only to feel broadly warm about the church and its people, but to see Jesus, to find out about him. And um uh uh the, the associate the assistant pastor uh, um uh, job description is very much um, focused on those kinds of areas. Dan, Dan Steele, um, who's the, the, the candidate most of you will know, has an extremely exciting vision as well for encouraging and supporting and nurturing church families in their crucial roles as husbands and wives and, and, um, and parents. We were very excited at the interview uh, uh, panel when we, um, we heard him uh, talking about that because we, we perceive that that's something that a really positive contribution that he could make to strengthen that, that family dimension of the, uh, of the church's life here.
And uh, the other thing that I'm very excited about personally as well is that uh, going up to two pastoral staff again will um, in fact release me um, again to be, uh, to be involved in some other areas of the church's life that need more attention. For instance, I, I'm, I'm particularly burdened about the enormous um, numbers of international students who there are in our area. Richard Weston was telling us in, a, in, a, in another meeting that, that probably no more than 5% of international students in Oxford ever get to hear the gospel while they are here. And many of those come from completely closed countries. Um, what an opportunity that is being barely, barely touched by the churches in Oxford at, at the moment. Um, I, 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 I long to have a bit more time and I hope that I will have to support Richard and Catherine and for us to think together how we can reach out to those, uh, those international students. Another thing that is very much on my heart at the moment is that actually as the, as the families just slowly have uh, the numbers have grown of families amongst us, which has been a very positive thing and certainly um, uh, is part of the appointment of the, the assistant post of our thinking, actually the number of singles has probably gone down slightly. And yet again, if you look at this area, um, there are vast numbers of single people. I want to think with people about how we can how we can make this a better place for single people to thrive as well as uh, uh, as the focus uh, on on families. There is so much still to do, but it needs people who invest in eternity. People with generous eye. People who are determined not to be ruled by money, but actually to use money to serve God's purposes. And let me say, we, we have a wonderful history of that as a church. Wonderful history. I, I'm praying that, that God will renew and enrich that heritage. And, I, and, and frankly, I'm not, I'm not just talking about money. Um, simple giving of time. Junior Church needs more volunteers. Nick Carpenter needs more volunteers. But, but, but it's more than that. I, I, don't, I don't think we should, in our own thinking focus all of our thoughts just on the needs of the organisation of the church, real as, it, real as it may be. Jesus, again, had far bigger vision than that. He wanted people whose daily habits of life, every day, were, were fostering and bolstering and growing and maturing their hearts. And that applies as much to what we do tomorrow morning as we go to work as it does to what we do in terms of our service within the church. You know, will, will you, when you get up tomorrow morning and head off to work as, 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 as most, most of us will, will you serve that day wherever you go, as the Apostle Paul says it, as if you were serving the Lord, not man? Will you come home 
And when you think about the day, will you measure the value of it by how much you were able to be Christ-like in your work that day? Because that's how God measures it. And that's what God rewards. Will you look on people, all kinds of people, family, work colleagues, friends, strangers, with a generous eye, knowing that that will not only benefit them, but it will benefit you because you will be filled with light. Will you live determined? Not to be ruled by money, but as Jesus says just at the end of the chapter, in chapter 6, verse 33, Will you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, trusting that all other things, they are necessary, God will give them to you, all the other things that you need for life, he will, be, he will give them to you. As you focus on serving him as your master every day. The state of your heart in five, ten, twenty years' time will be determined by the cumulative weight of the choices that you make. I remember, um, most of you know, I I trained to be a vet. I I worked as a vet for a good number of years before I was a pastor. And I remember as a a young vet, hearing the story of a couple of um, Christian vets from a previous generation who set up in practice to, together. And uh, they were determined when they formed their partnership to live for Christ and to bear witness to him by the way that they did their jobs and by the service within the community to bear witness to Christ um, where, where they were. But over the years, the work was hard and um, financial worries were very significant for them in their business. And uh, the basic disciplines of their Christian lives got squeezed out. And uh, then eventually, actually, they fell out with each other in a public and very vitriolic way and the partnership ended. And by the time they got to my age, neither of them were living a recognisably Christian life. And it wasn't the crisis in the partnership that capsized them. It was the long, progressive withering of their hearts as they made little decision after little decision after little decision which was not for God. Jesus is interested in our hearts more than anything else. He's interested in our hearts. And there is one last thing which Jesus doesn't say here, but the New Testament says very, very clearly that we must understand. I'm pretty sure that there will be people here who say to themselves, 
I can't do that. In fact, I would say that anyone who knows their own heart will be saying that to themselves. I can't do that. Every single one of us in this room, by now, has accumulated enough bad choices, enough silly decisions, that have corrupted their hearts enough that they feel they can't turn back, one way or another. And the Bible says, it's exactly right. That by nature, we are in a vicious cycle. Whereby, we feel ourselves drawn to make bad decisions and that damages our hearts so that it draws us to make worse decisions and so on. And there is only one thing that can make the difference. It is God's Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 describes that inevitable downward tug as the law of sin and death. And then he says something amazing though. He says the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. What needs to happen in each of us if we are to move from a vicious circle to a virtuous cycle is that we need God's help by His Spirit. We need to be set free. We need God's Spirit to enable us to start making one by one those little decisions. I I, I don't know what God wants you to do specifically at this moment. I hope that he has spoken to you in some way about something. But I do know that the only way you will be enabled to do it truly, sincerely and in a committed manner is if the Holy Spirit helps you. And so I hope that that cacophony of thoughts has focused into that one thought. I really do want to love you with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. Please, God, help me. Our hearts depend on it.